0: Section 103, the end of Windows software. If the future of Windows apps is HTML5 and JavaScript, then Windows has no future. Tim Anderson's blog, IT writing, June 3rd, 2011. A reasonable question to ask is why did Windows 8 need to create a new compl- a new platform? Not only did Microsoft have Win32, the tried and true real Windows platform compatible with everything, But the company had pioneered the .NET platform and with Windows Phone 7, extended that platform to phones with Silverlight. This post is my take on the history and how we ended up at this point. It takes us way back and shows how sometimes what emerges as a major strategic problem can trace its origins back much earlier than one might think. In the next section, we will unveil the platform to developers at the build conference. The Windows platform and associated app ecosystem were sick. Across product executives, we had a very tough time coming to grips with the abysmal situation. We definitely could not agree on when the situation turned dire, or why it had, or even how dire it was. That meant doing something about it was going to be challenging. Some were so desperate for good news that they grabbed onto any shred of optimism. At one of the infamous mid-year review meetings, MYR, during the development of Windows 7, A country general manager proudly presented their results of the annual developer survey designed to show what platform developers were coding for and the tools that they use. The head of the developer segment for India said they were seeing Windows rise to the top of the chart for most interesting and targeted platform, Windows. Immediately, the room woke up from its MYR-induced stupor. Questions and comments were flying. What outreach did you do? Did you start in university comp sci programs? How did you use financial incentives? The optimism was misplaced. The reality was even more bleak than a benign survey outlier, a common occurrence when compensation and quarter metrics were attached to surveys. There was no surge in Windows development. Nope, it was the opposite. India had become a favorite location for companies to outsource their legacy Windows software development. We weren't measuring an uptick. We were literally measuring the final blow to the Windows development ecosystem as companies everywhere looked to place development out of sight and out of mind. I hate to say so, but it was obvious that's what the data showed. Microsoft itself had incented teams to transition projects to India, and not often the most strategic ones, as I learned when we had to reconstitute the Windows-sustaining engineering team. Through the 1990s and the rise of Windows, Bill G. hosted an annual dinner for the largest and most important Windows software developers, the CEOs and founders of leading tech companies of the era. The dinner was always a star-studded affair featuring legends of the industry, including Philippe Kahn, Jim Manzi, Ray Ozzie, Paul and George Grayson, David Fulton, Fred Gibbons, Scott Cook, and perhaps 50 more. These were the leaders of the new industry, each presiding over companies with hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars of revenue. The companies that built the tools from the earliest PC days, Borland Turbo Pascal, Lotus 123, Lotus Notes, MicroGraphics, FoxPro, Harvard Graphics, Quicken, and more. As Windows won, ironically, the health of these companies declined. There was a natural consolidation. Many were acquired, and their products slowly faded. Microsoft had its competitive products, and the rise of Office, Visual C++, Outlook, and others certainly contributed. Microsoft's singular bet on Windows and early success on Macintosh were, of course, factors as well. It was, however, the Internet and the web browser that really changed everything. The above ISVs started their companies in the 1980s on MS-DOS or in the early 1990s on Windows. Anyone starting a company, particularly in Silicon Valley, in the late 1990s started as a web company. Many startups created enterprise software though we tend to remember the rise of Yahoo, Google, and later Facebook. A look at top software companies in 2010 read like a list of industrial giants more than pure play software. PWC published a list, Global 100 Software Leaders, that illustrated how the industry had changed. Among the top 100, there were only three that made tools or productivity software primarily aimed at Windows or Mac, Adobe, Autodesk, and Intuit. There were even more companies that built safety, security, or management tools addressing shortcomings of the PC. McAfee, Symantec, Trend Micro, Citrix, etc. Most of the companies were either transitioning or transitioned completely to web-based interfaces running against data center software. The online version has the top top 100 list from 2010. The real end of the ISV dinner happened for me in 1999, the Microsoft Business Productivity Group, BPG, led by Microsoft Senior Vice President Bob Muglia, announced a deal to acquire Visio Corporation for approximately $1.5 billion, Microsoft's largest acquisition at the time. Visio was a profitable company approaching $200 million per year in revenue and nearly $30 million a year in net income. Bob Moo was my manager, though I didn't know anything about this deal. The Visio Corp founders were the fantastic team of Jeremy Jake, Ted Johnson, and Dave Walter. Jeremy and Dave had previously co-founded Seattle-based Aldous Corporation, where Ted later led the engineering for Windows PageMaker. Aldous was acquired by Adobe in 1994. Visio was a wonderful product and from the very start engineered a strong affinity to Microsoft Office, often working jointly with us on marketing, sales, and even consistency of product design. The product, an easy-to-use diagramming application, pioneered many structured drawing tools we take for granted today, such as stencils of shapes, the ability to modify shape geometry, and magnetic connectors between shapes. The company was headquartered in downtown Seattle when Microsoft didn't even have offices across the bridge. Visio was the last poster child of the old ISV world left standing to have started out as a Windows software company. It was one of the first applications developed for Windows 95 a fact that was heavily promoted. Strategically, it used everything Microsoft could throw at it, from Visual Basic for automation to data access to Olay. Ted once joked with me that they would have used Clippy if we gave them the chance. Ted, who stayed on for a bit with Microsoft and then later returned to work on Internet Explorer, as email Ted J, was always candid about their journey. He was wonderful to talk with and had experiences of a founder, which I sometimes sought out. His view was clear that the days of being a breakthrough independent developer focused exclusively on Windows were over. It wasn't just the browser, but also the demands of building out an enterprise sales force and having a full product line exclusively devoted to being a Windows ISV. This was even before the rise of mobile. I had a few conversations with Bob Mu and Steve V over whether it was a good idea for the health of the ecosystem that we participate in the ongoing consolidation. I think they heard what I was saying as a resistance to the deal because I'd end up managing the team. That wasn't it at all. I love the team and the product. Visio was ultimately a great addition to the Office family and brought significant amount of expertise with a great team. For me, it meant the only remaining independent and relatively horizontal Windows ISV remaining was Adobe. Should we buy them too? They'd be our, then we'd be our own ISV ecosystem. It just didn't seem healthy. On the other hand, it was inevitable. Windows ISV world just wasn't what it was, but why? Microsoft wasn't standing still while this decline took place. We struggled to build both a coherent strategy and execute effectively. It wasn't a shortage of strategy, rather it was a combination of several strategies that ended up failing to reinforce each other and ultimately weakened the overall company strategy. At the core was Microsoft's collective response to the internet platform. The browser and the server programming model the windows team fully embraced the browser as the future platform pioneering and advancing html along the way in the 1990s windows even redesigned the windows desktop to integrate html and browser technology onto the surface of the desktop still there was no bridge between windows and the web platform windows simply became a place to run a browser in windows 7 we finally took a step of relying on Windows itself for browser features when we integrated DirectX graphics that enhanced animation, video, and overall browsing performance. That came after Microsoft seeded dominance that it earned in an earlier era, unfortunately. This entire time, the Windows API, Win32, went undernourished, so to speak. It didn't really matter because anything done in a new release of Windows would be ignored by ISVs unless it also worked on older versions of Windows. Enterprise PCs continued to run older versions of Windows longer than even the three- to five-year upgrade cycle of Windows, and PCs were lasting longer as well. No ISV was willing to invest in writing codes specific to a new version of Windows for what amounted to tiny marginal gains in functionality or features. Some teams released new features that ran on the installed base of older Windows, further reducing the perceived value of a Windows upgrade. This cycle of distributing new features for the old Windows installed base increased the complexity and fragility of existing PCs by designing implementations of system-level features to work on the context of multiple versions of Windows. It was a mess. Windows had turned into a distribution vehicle for features without a coherent platform strategy. The Windows Server team faced its own API battle, distinct from the client side. In the 1990s, the team developed high-performance and scalable web server capabilities, such as Internet Information Server. This platform handily won the enterprise market that was buying servers to host websites along with Oracle databases, Microsoft Exchange email, and corporate file servers. There was an entire new software industry built on servers running Windows that rivaled or even exceeded the size of the old end-user software industry. Companies such as SAP, Siebel, VMware, EMC, and more rose from this era. These companies were really the platforms of the server era, as most supported Unix, Linux, or even IBM mainframes. The ISVs and developers of this era were also mostly inside corporations or consultants, either as independent or small shops of all sizes. Their business was in connecting and customizing these server platforms, one customer at a time. While Windows along with a database such as Microsoft SQL Server or Oracle could easily serve web pages, the real business was in building, a commercial website, a customer facing catalog or internal corporate portals and connecting that site to internal line of business systems such as SAP. Windows wasn't much of a platform for that. The developer division built that platform. The origin of .NET was to provide the platform and abstractions for web applications landscape. Arising during fierce competition for Mindshare with the Java language from Sun, .NET was Microsoft's own answer to middleware, or software that was neither an application nor an operating system. The success of .NET proved that a platform does not have to be an operating system, but can be anything that developers bet their business on something we in office had been saying about Word and Excel for ages. The .NET platform provided for the new world of browser and web server computing, what Visual Basic and SQL provided for the Win32 era of client server. This strategy and execution were incredible. The dominance in the enterprise customer segment prior to the cloud era was unparalleled. The emergence of cloud computing, however, posed new challenges. What had been an annoyance competitively had become the platform of the cloud, the tools affectionately known as LAMP, re- representing Linux, Apache, MySQL, and then a mouthful of PHP, Perl, or Python and their progeny, to find how the new enterprise public cloud would be built. These were the building blocks of applications built on Amazon AWS as well. Almost as fast as .NET rose to prominence, it faded to be the installed base. There's a footnote to this in that many of the .NET-based systems built and deployed in the early 2000s were mission-critical business systems that will be used, maintained, and enhanced for a decade or many more. The story did not end there, because in parallel with the rise of .NET for servers, the developer division, tasked with battling Java, also had to compete with the use of Java on the desktop. There was ample evidence that the raison d'etre for Java on the desktop was doomed to failure. The mantra, write once, run anywhere, meaning that Java programs could work on any type of desktop, such as any version of Windows, Mac, or Linux, was never gonna work. That was not a reason to let it go, however. As a result, there was a wave of products and technologies designed to bring .NET to the desktop to write Windows programs. The languishing Win32 API was no longer receiving much support or innovation from the developer division. My old product, C++ and MFC, the preferred choice of professional ISVs using Win32, was relegated to maintenance mode. Instead, a new and constantly expanding set of technologies from the developer division were evangelized as the preferred way to write professional Windows software. The names and differences between these technologies are not entirely Critical, and my intent is not to start a debate over the relative prominence, target customer, or capability of any one of these. Some of the new desktop technologies included WinForms, Forms Cubed, WPF and XAML, Silverlight, and others that were less visible or more anted towards application internals. A defining characteristic of each of the .NET technologies was a strong relationship to Microsoft's programming language developed for the .NET server platform, C-sharp. This language was designed by the highly regarded language designer, Anders Hillsberg, email Anders H at Microsoft. He was previously at Borland, which had licensed his product that became the legendary Turbo Pascal. The use of C was a dream for Bill G, who always wanted Microsoft to develop and own a proprietary programming language implementation. The combination of C-sharp and the above-growing list of technologies would together be known confusingly as .NET. While it made some sense from a marketing perspective to have a single unifying umbrella term, it meant for confusing discussions with developers. Were we talking about a language or the API? Were we talking about programming the desktop or the server? Which client API specifically, since they were both discrete and kind of overlapped? This mattered because few developers use the whole of .NET. And so when engaging with them, narrowing it down mattered. Even with the .NET branding, owning a language was not enough. In fact, as I argue with Bill G going way back to C++, a proprietary language was neither necessary nor sufficient strategically. The only thing that mattered in a platform battle was owning the APIs and runtime. Languages are both easy to copy and easy to replace. But the use of APIs and code developers write lasts a really long time. The P in LAMP was showing how many languages were already native to cloud computing. As we see today, the polylingual era of computing is the norm for most large systems. Enterprises did not like this, nor did the consulting and ISV world that was well-paid by enterprises. They wanted a homogeneous C-sharp world they could leverage across projects. The developer division strategy fed that need to the exclusion of building quality Windows applications. The other defining characteristic of the new developer division desktop technologies was the weak or lack of relationship to even Win32. These technologies certainly ran on Windows, but they were not Windows itself and did not have the performance or quality of Win32 based or what we call native applications. They were layered on top of Windows architecturally the strategy was specifically to evolve these technologies separate from Windows so they could be provided across Windows versions, and because the implementation was so specifically designed to avoid interfering with Windows at all. Building .NET this way ensured that the developer division was not beholden to the slowing and unpredictable Windows ship schedule. The rift between Windows and developer grew significantly from 2004 to 2006, as the Longhorn Vista project progressed. Then Windows leadership effectively banned .NET from Longhorn because of the performance and memory management issues. The Windows team made a rule that no applications with .NET would ship with Windows Vista. This infuriated the broad developer community as it seemed like a classic case of do as I say, not as I do. After years of evangelizing that .NET was the future of Windows. There was a strong sense of betrayal among the .NET community outside of Microsoft, particularly those developing desktop applications. This put them on the defensive, constantly on the lookout for signs that Microsoft was backing down support from their preferred .NET platform technology. One member of the .NET developer community consistently checked pre-release builds of Windows Vista, creating a nutrition label of sorts, and concluded that no more than 4% of Vista used .NET code. That was substantially different than the promise of a fully .NET operating system they believed Microsoft had promised them. The online version includes the article, the 4% OS. Managing an ecosystem comes with a responsibility to maintain a consistency of messaging, as well as to avoid undermining the financial investments people are making in that ecosystem. Windows Server did not see .NET the same way. In fact, Windows Server fully embraced .NET, and it became an integral part of the value proposition. Why then was there such a difference when only a courtyard separated the teams? .NET was the server platform, plain and simple. While there were some developers writing native code to the networking storage or kernel layers, these were the rough equivalents of those writing device drivers for the desktop. They were an important part of the ecosystem, but a very small community. This would have been the right way to separate the different API layers on the desktop, but that was not the approach taken. Instead, a deep schism was created between the Win32 and .NET APIs on the desktop. This schism went even further than that because .NET itself had non-overlapping technologies where any given development project would only likely pick one, for example, Silverlight or WinForms, creating advocates for one part of .NET over another, even as evangelists painted a picture of a .NET family. There were also various Win32 APIs that weren't clearly part of the formal definition of Windows, such as DirectX graphics, but were used by different parts of .NET in varying ways. Often, .NET would use a technology in Windows or one of these other APIs, which seemed good on the face of it. Diving in, one would find that .NET used a subset of Windows and that precluded using the full capabilities from within a .NET program. It was super confusing. Such details were often lost in the fervent online discussions and zealotry that surrounded this debate. I understand, as I write this, and the proceeding, that people would want to debate this even today and the various merits of these opinions or offer examples how one could indeed mix and match API sets. In section 91, I describe such things as stupid computer tricks to that end. While the bulk of the world of software developers were moving to or had already moved to the browser, those within the Microsoft sphere of influence were debating the merits of their preferred way to write desktop apps for Windows so long as it was using C Sharp and not Win32. There would be a few to no pure play commercial software products for sale that used.NET, .NET other than some tools to support specific hardware or other support products. The Zoom desktop app was often used as the example for Microsoft. A rewrite of Visual Studio itself was often discussed in this vein as well. For the bulk of the world's developers, there was only one thing holding back the browser and the HTML-only world so many developers desired, aside from bugs and inconsistencies between browser vendors and versions. Surprisingly, that was Adobe. Adobe acquired Macromedia Flash in 2005. Flash had become the way to bring power of the desktop computing to run inside the browser. It crushed Microsoft's attempt, as previously discussed, called ActiveX. Primarily, it won over the world of streaming video, having been chosen by YouTube, and also the advertising world where Flash was routinely used for kind of obnoxious and intrusive flashing and flyover advertisements, also for browsing the interiors of cars and movie clips. Recall that Silverlight in the 2010 timeframe had originally been Microsoft's answer to compete with Flash, but had been repurposed to be the API for Windows Phone 7 and subsequently Windows Phone 8. Silverlight was related to the whole .NET umbrella term, but came with its own set of constraints. It had little to do with our Windows platform. Silverlight was non-apologetic about running on not just old versions of Windows, but also Mac and soon smartphones. Microsoft's evangelism kicked into high gear for Silverlight. Many Microsofties fondly remember Netflix using Silverlight in the browser in the early days of Netflix. Adobe would hit a speed bump, or more correctly, a brick wall along the way. Apple. The iPhone never supported Flash. Many thought this would doom the iPhone as Flash had become so synonymous with the fun part of the web and the economics of the web. The iPhone team worked with Google and YouTube to create an iOS app that played YouTube videos. That was not only the right solution for customers, but made a clear and deep philosophical point held by Steve Jobs. Operating systems are a thing, not a set of layers. And to build a good operating system, one does not layer one operating system-like technology on top of another. This view would be seen as somewhat contrarian in the halls of Microsoft, since both Silverlight depended on such layers, as did the rest of .NET. Outside of Microsoft, people would perceive Apple's stubbornness about Flash as simply Steve Jobs trying to control things. It was obviously frustrating for Apple. It got to the point that Apple and Steve Jobs needed to say something. The reason was that the iPad was about to hit the streets in mid-2010, and the tech press was hounding Apple over the need to support Flash on such a large-screen browser as the iPad if it were to be a true computer and not a phone. It didn't matter that Adobe never delivered Flash to any phone or tablet, as Jobs pointed out, or that on netbooks, Flash ran so poorly as to be useless. They just wanted Steve Jobs to fix this. Steve had a better idea. On April 29th, 2010, commensurate with the U.S. availability of the iPad, Apple published a missive, Thoughts on Flash, signed by Steve Jobs. I thought it was brilliant. To this day, I believe it was the most concise expression of excellent product strategy and appreciation of great engineering that any CEO anywhere had written during the PC era. The online version includes the full text of Thoughts on Flash. Jobs laid out one of the clearest and most well-articulated strategies for why Flash was not a good idea on the iPhone or, frankly, ever. In terms of strategic clarity in general, this remains a standard by which to judge any strategy. He dismissed and dismantled Flash in fewer than 1,700 words, detailing that Flash was closed, not really part of the web, performed poorly relative to the reliability, security, and performance, had poor battery life, did not work with touch, and most importantly, the whole concept of a third-party runtime is bad for everyone. Was it self-serving? Sure, absolutely. Apple wanted people to build apps for the iPhone using Apple's proprietary tools and platform, and everyone knew it. But Jobs wasn't wrong. In fact, he was precisely right on the negatives, which just killed everyone to admit. This was the technical buzzsaw at its finest. As I read the polemic, I found myself nodding in violent agreement. The current choices we faced in building Windows ACE, Windows 8 found us in the middle of various .NET runtimes, each of which shared shortcomings and limitations with Flash. The jobs memo also took me back to my first product, the Microsoft Foundation classes, when we lived through making all the mistakes of building a C++ variant of a third-party runtime. We discarded the old AFX project after explaining to Bill G why what we had built in 1991 was so big, slow, and unlike Windows. Everything about Thoughts on Flash resonated. I loved it. I broadly circulated Thoughts on Flash and talked for a long time with Alesh Holacek, email Alesh H, the distinguished engineer head of the Windows Experience engineering team on Windows 7, and soon the vice president leading the creation of the app platform for Windows 8, as the engineering leader of DevX, the platform counterpart to the UEX experience team. He had firsthand experience in this problem area, having worked on a flashlight competitor early, in the early days of the web. We shared a lot of nodding when discussing this memo. What Jobs captured so well was that modern computing had moved in a new direction. The idea of modern computing platform hosting another platform on top of it, while that platform essentially emulated, but differently, The underlying native platform was patently dumb. It was a guaranteed way to drag down the whole experience across the gamut of reliability, performance, touch, battery life, privacy, reliability, and so on. For certain, Jobs' memo was a full assault on Flash. But it was the whole concept of building platforms on top of platforms that was the problem. The developer division did not see the situation that way. The tensions and divisions that had been growing between Windows and developers since the arrival of .NET in 2001 were reaching a breaking point, not just within Microsoft, but the developer community as well. From their collective perspective, Windows 8 should make a big bet on the runtimes that had been created, just as they'd been promised previously. We were well aware of this desire and the existing schism in developing Windows 8. Julie Lar and I both were rooted in our own experience in the developer division in the early 1990s. P.J. Huck, who led the amazing cross-group partnership between Office and Visual Basic to bring VBA to all of Office, was now a leader in the developer division. Our connections were strong. There was a good deal of positive history. Similar experiences can yield engineering results that are similar. And like Apple, we had early in the Windows 8 design phase concluded that Windows needed a new platform, not yet another set of libraries on top of Windows like Flash. The Windows 8 platform needed to be Windows itself, not a library floating on top. We were also determined to build first-party apps the same way we were going to seek out developers to build their apps. This eating our own dog food would be critical validation of the platform. The tools and platform would support a new set of modern needs for Windows 8. Paraphrasing from pre-release developer documentation, defining the platform attributes. It is written to take advantage of the Metro-style immersive experience. It provides a UI look and feel that is compliant with Metro-style, including the app bar, animations, typography, layout, and so on. It supports modern startup, shutdown, and hibernation, windowing, and process lifetime management. It supports app contracts. App contracts define the capabilities apps can follow to participate in Windows-controlled UI experiences, such as live tiles, SnapView, splash screen, search, share, notifications, file picking, settings, and connect. It runs in an application container for security and is completely isolated from other apps. It is only delivered through the new deployment technology, the new app store. It installs per user, not per machine. It installs and uninstalls cleanly, leaving nothing behind at all. It is impossible for an app to change the state of the OS in an irreversible way. Nevertheless, at our unveiling of the user experience in June 2011 at the All Things D conference, we ran right into this sensitivity and brought the full wrath of the .NET community. It was just an omission of a couple of words and a lack of appropriate deference to .NET that set us up for a good deal of pain. In the course of the demonstration, with both Julie and I on stage, we said and echoed each other about a key aspect of the new Metro style apps. We said these beautiful, secure, easy to build, safe, reliable apps could be built using our new platform with HTML and JavaScript. That was it. That was all we said. It was just a reflex. In fact, it was the news. Microsoft embracing the world's most popular and widely used programming languages for its flagship product was a big deal. It was a key part of how we would make building Windows 8 apps easier and more accessible to legions of developers. It was also differentiated relative to Apple's proprietary and unloved Objective-C and Android's Java that wasn't living up to all the hype. As if to pour gasoline on the fire, Jensen Harris and his video, viewed by millions, said the same. Steve Ballmer even waded accidentally into the fray by simply repeating the statements made at the D conference demo. The problem was we inadvertently sent a message to a very sensitive and on edge community that we had jettisoned.NET and finally made good on what the Vista team had essentially done by fiat. In an Ars Technica article documenting the assault on.NET, the headline ran. Why Microsoft has made developers horrified about coding for Windows 8, horrified. And it was so indignant, it even quoted an extraneous, uh, in Julie's statement from the developer conference demo. Our new developer platform, which is, uh, based on HTML, F5, and JavaScript. This was a problem of our own making. The strength of this reaction was a testament to our incredible evangelism efforts. The success of which greatly outpaced the impact of these technologies in the market. We knew the data from the developer surveys and what people were using. We knew what programs were running on Windows PCs through our telemetry. We knew what technologies the new generation of cloud companies were using and the world's universities were teaching. We knew that within the Microsoft bubble, .NET was everything. While that's a big bubble, it was small relative to the whole universe especially with the rise of mobile platforms and cloud computing. We used to joke about the developer division surveys that always showed dominance of .NET because of the well-known Microsoft Echo Chamber or Bubble. The survey results said 100% of .NET developers prefer .NET. There were many frustrations with our statement at the D conference, expressed through countless blogs and endless discussions about this transgression. Most began with the notion that HTML and JavaScript were immature and lacked horsepower to serve as the foundation for great applications. Rooted in this commentary was a disdain for what were routinely dismissed as script kiddies, or those calling themselves programmers who merely created static web pages or simply modified a few lines of a web page and claimed expertise. This was all from another era and reminded me of the age old real programmers meme from long before there were memes. The online version has that real programmers meme. The truth is by 2010, real programmers did use HTML and JavaScript. In fact, they were the most used, most taught and most widely and actively developed languages. Taking a buzzsaw to HTML was a losing proposition. No matter the technical merits programming language experts might debate. The main issue however, was where this left all the other Microsoft technologies. Disrespecting HTML and JavaScript was simply smoke around the .NET fire. Specifically, where did we see Silverlight and its more feature-laden parent WPF and the language C-sharp fitting in? Developers were apoplectic about their investment in Microsoft .NET technologies not moving forward with Windows 8, whether those were WinForms, Silverlight, WPF, C-sharp, or even C++. Silverlight .NET expert Mike James wrote in Dumping on.NET, Microsoft's madness. That if the future of Windows apps is HTML5 and JavaScript, then Windows has no future. His post went on to explain the idea that Silverlight is Windows. It just runs inside a browser. He also explained how.NET improved the Windows API, making it more readily programmable. Our choice was to engage at the time without pre release code to test or validate what we were saying. Or waited out for a Seattle summer when we would have code available. Obviously, given the situation, the concerned developer community would doubt every word we said or wrote. We knew once the pre-release code was distributed, we would have to answer these questions, these festering questions, but could do so pointing to the product. I chose the latter and waited for our developer conference scheduled for September of 2011. Engaging in online discussions with an asymmetry of information in the context of such deep concerns would be a frustrating experience for everyone. The online version has this article by Tim Anderson. Tim Anderson wrote in his blog, Microsoft refuses to comment as .NET developers fret about Windows 8 and said, In fact, it is bewildering that Microsoft is being so careless with this critical part of the platform – even if this turns out to more to do with communication than technical factors finally we could always count on mary jo foley of zdnet to catch a leak from the developer division and her sources clearly indicated microsoft needs to tell windows 8 developers now about jupiter and silverlight Jupyter was the code name for the other part of our windows 8 developer strategy to use c sharp wpf and its language xaml the article continued Microsoft's longer-term goal is to align its various developer stacks, giving it a story that's comparable to Apple's. Because Apple supporting iOS on tablets and phones, Apple developers can write once and have their apps run in both places with relatively little modification. Just as many blogs have stated, this article also concluded, Like many devs I've heard from, I don't believe Microsoft can afford to wait three more months to let its developer base know what its intentions are. So far, however, ill-advised silence seems to be the softies' plan. We had a plan. We had a new platform. It addressed these concerns. We also knew that if we started answering questions now, we'd end up in theoretical debates from June through September and the developer conference. The conference, a rebranding of the PDC to Build, would provide code, tools, and answers to these questions, I thought. Off to the Build conference to share the platform we created.